they can get a cheerleader a lot cheaper than me. All I'm looking for in deposition of the defendant is what it is I want to start my case with. It isn't about your war with that lawyer. It's about your war with injustice and your war for justice. And I'd say don't be worried about how you can maximize your fee in any one given deal. Think about your reputation long term. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. Our guest today is Ashby Pate. Some real brief background on Ashby. He's a graduate of the University of Alabama Law School. He comes from a family of lawyers. He's a very gifted musician and at one point really wanted to pursue that as a career. Ashby is a really interesting guy and has lived a fascinating life uh, ranging from uh, serving as a federal judicial law clerk in Alabama to uh, serving as a justice in the Palau Supreme Court and uh, now he practices law in Alabama with the Franklin Lightfoot firm. I first met Ashby at a conference in Savannah, Georgia where he was speaking about the power of connection and uh, his message really spoke to me. Uh, Ashby gets vulnerable and provides everything from some great storytelling to really good practical tips on being a good mentee. I think you're going to enjoy it. Thanks. Well, I am uh, glad to be here with Ashby Pate from the wonderful state of Alabama. Welcome. Thank you. And uh, Ashby, let's just start by telling us uh, how in the world a kid from Alabama ends up in Palau? <laughs> um, that is uh, a long and winding road. Um, the The Reader's Digest version is uh, I was clerking for a federal judge right out of law school and got what I thought was a spam email basically like something from a Nigerian prince asking for money, except this was... Did, did you send the check? <laughs> I did not send the check, but I did send a resume. Um, <laughs> and it was essentially encouraging federal law clerks to apply for a clerkship in the Republic of Palau. I had already accepted a uh, a scholarship to go get my master's in international law the following year. And so I thought, what the hell? And... Um, sent my resume in and uh, interviewed with the Chief Justice of Palau in New Orleans, and he offered me a job. And where is Palau? Palau is about 1,500 miles due south of Tokyo, uh, right in the middle of the western North Pacific. Okay. Is it, I'm, I'm visualizing an exotic Bahamas-esque island. True or not true? 100% true. Okay. Um, and then tell us, uh, I, I I know that you ultimately went back a second time. Tell us about that. Uh, so I left Palau uh, thinking that, that I just had a year as a clerk, and um, that was just going to have been a, a one-off, and went back to practice law in Birmingham uh, with the firm of Lightfoot, Franklin, and White. And um, I was there for about three years, and Palau is an interesting place. It it has since World War II has had at least one American justice on their Supreme Court. Um, and my predecessor, the American judge on the court, resigned uh, in 2012, and I had maintained a relationship with the Chief Justice. And he encouraged me to apply for the open position, but admonished me that there was no chance 
in the world, I would actually get it at the age of 33. Um, but he said it not, would be a not per- a whole lot of Supreme Court justices anywhere that are 33. That's correct. And my phone rang during the second quarter of the Alabama Notre Dame game, um, and I almost didn't answer it um, because I thought, "What rude person could possibly be calling me during the Alabama game?" Some, somebody who doesn't live in Alabama yeah, and is not a Notre Dame fan. It was the president <laughs> of Palau, uh, and uh, I answered the phone, and he offered me the job, and I accepted on the spot. So, how long were you in Palau? Um, I was in Palau all told for about four years. Okay, and. So when you get to Palau to work as a, a justice on the Palau Supreme Court, did you ever feel qualified for that job, or what was that like? I uh, suffer from a healthy sense of self-regard, and so... <laughs> I can't um, relate, but I know people <laughs> like that. No, I, I felt utterly unqualified uh, to do the job once I got there uh, and realized... Uh, the task before me. Uh, It was a court of general jurisdiction, and I sat as both a trial and an appellate judge. And so I had everything from, you know, breach of contracts to attempted murders to divorces to probate um, and to appeals from all of the above. And so it was a uh, it was a trial by fire the first year I was there. That's for sure. Yes, I read something that you you took on some human rights civil rights case or or it came before you when you were on the Palau Supreme Court? Yes. Um, that was the case of uh, Henry McLean Angelino. Uh, it was a habeas petition. He was a prisoner in the, the Karor Jail, which was the only correctional facility in the country, um, and he was requesting to be moved. Um, he wasn't challenging the, his conviction. He was requesting to be moved from the solitary confinement quarters. Um, he had alleged that he had been held there for um, months on end without being allowed uh, out to shower or use the bathroom, and um, it was a it was a very difficult case. Um, and as a result of the petition, um, we went and had to tour the the facilities, and I actually found myself being locked in the solitary confinement quarters as a way of testing his claims, and that was. Um, uh, an unpleasant experience, to I say bet. the least. I bet. What happened with the case? Um, we, uh, after um, spending a little time in the quarters um, where it was as uh, bad of, a, of conditions as you can imagine, um, we declared those conditions unconstitutional and essentially shut um, a significant portion of the jail down and required that they... Um, change or enter into a consent decree to um, uh, change the entire makeup of the solitary confinement uh, practice and quarters in in Palau. Wow. That's interesting. Did the Palau experience, if you think of kind of how that shaped you doing that at such a young age, what, what st- sticks with you today that you learned from that experience? Um, I, I think I learned quite a bit uh, in terms of the ability to be flexible and not, not being afraid of not knowing what you were doing. Um, the fake it till you make it uh, approach to practicing yes. law. Um, I think 99% of, of lawyers um, are capable of doing 
just about any type of legal work if they put their mind to it. And I think people are a little too afraid to venture into um, different areas of law for fear that you know they don't know as much as someone else. And um, I certainly am no stranger to that fear, but uh, being thrust into that situation gave me a lot more comf- comfort um, being willing to do something that I hadn't done before. Yes. Ever uh, a moment in your life story where it looked like uh, law was not going to happen? Yes. Uh, many moments, as a matter of fact. It wasn't my first choice of careers, that's for sure. So, What, what, what did you want to do? I wanted to play music. I've heard you. You're pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. I, being just pretty good apparently <laughs> will not get you where you want to go. That will not pay the bills. <laughs> it will not pay the bills. And did you did you head down the path of trying to make that a career? I did. I did. I, I you know, watching watching my father uh, as a trial lawyer, I knew that he had passed on in the the DNA, as it were, the performance aspect of. Um, the craft, um, and I, I, I believed early on that it had just uh, come to me in the form of being a musician. Um, but much of the same skills are required, as you might imagine. And um, I was lucky enough to um, have a lot of musical training. And so after college, I, I spent about four or five years playing in a band and, and touring the southeast and making records and um, you know living the life I. I thought I'd imagined, but it turned out it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Was there a defining moment where uh, you realized uh, music was not going to be the path? Yes and no. For anyone who is a musician or an athlete or um, someone who dreamed of doing something creatively uh, for a living, um, when you when that's starts to wane it's not a damascus road experience it's it's a for me it was a series of um of of little deaths as it were um being around uh players and musicians who are so much better than me um seeing others have success um and seeing it not happen to me you start to see the writing on the wall um in the same way when i was about 11 years old, I realized I probably wasn't going to play for the Chicago Bulls yes. for some obvious reasons. Um, so there wasn't really a Damascus Road experience, though I will say um, I knew I wanted to go to law school uh, after a show we played in the Mermaid Lounge in New Orleans. So- sounds like a very high-class place. It's not. Uh, it's no longer... Uh, the doors are no longer open, but it, it actually was... With a, a name like the Mermaid Lounge, it, you think it would be eternal. One of the guideposts leading me out of the music business, as it were, was um, like many young men, I think, my age, who were in that scene, um, I spent a lot of time... Uh, having a little too much fun um, and doing the type of drugs we probably shouldn't have been doing. And um, I was uh, arrested one night uh, for possession of uh, narcotics, um, class C felony, and thrown into the Birmingham jail um, and spent uh, a little over a day in jail until I was bailed out and had to deal with um, what that meant for someone at the age of 23, 24, um, who thought they had their life uh, ahead of them. And then 
um, saw what could happen and what very well could have happened um, over uh, you know what I what ultimately was a, a really dumb series of choices that I made and so um, half after I sort of came out the other side um, it was at that moment or a series of moments as it were that I, I realized that I needed to um, focus uh, more on uh, on trying to do something uh, to help other people that maybe had been in the same situation that I was in and what I was currently doing at the time certainly wasn't doing that yeah well we're uh, we're glad that you walked through that any any learning lessons that uh, translate of walking out of that experience because if I'm tracking your history right, um, you had already gone to college at that point. I had, yeah. So I saw just in looking at your background that you graduate summa cum laude, which I know that means you're smart. <laughs> and then next thing you know, you're in jail. You're walking through that experience. Life learning lessons. Uh, well, don't do cocaine in a car. That's uh, usually a good. That's that's good that, life that, that's number lesson. one. I joke, but, you know, life will give you a second chance, I think, almost all the time. But generally speaking, life tends not to give you third chances. Hmm. Uh, And I saw that play out in my own life, and I saw it play out in the lives of of some other friends of mine. And so to the extent I I learned a lesson in that, um, certainly there was a scared straight type moment. But it wasn't some moment where I thought that that I had been on some terribly wayward path that that I had been saved from from the jaws of hell as it were it, it was more an eye-opening moment about how blessed I was to have been afforded the opportunity not to suffer the same fate as so many other people yes. tend to and so more than um, more than anything it was a it was an eye-opening moment about our criminal justice system and how some people are favored and some aren't and how um, it should be incumbent upon all of us uh, to um, work as hard as we can to see um, the same opportunities that were afforded to me be afforded to everyone. I I know the path was not direct and linear from uh, the Mermaid Bar to uh, representing the Ethics Commission for the state of Alabama in the Roy Moore case. Uh, I know there was a lot of uh, dips and peaks and valleys, but I, I do want to hear about the the Roy Moore case. And for those that don't know, uh, Roy Moore was the uh, chief justice of Alabama Supreme Court, and there was an ethics. Is it an investigation that came? An ethics investigation followed by six ethics charges. Okay. Um, and then how do you get engaged as uh, a former Palau Supreme Court Justice and rock singer, and how do you end up representing the state of Alabama? That was, um, like many of the events in my life, of the greatest consequence, you know, it it happened uh, by no fault of my own. Um, (laughs) I was, I had just returned home from Palau and was working for Sam uh, at Lightfoot Franklin, and um, the Judicial Inquiry Commission had filed charges against Chief Justice Moore, and he had promptly turned around and sued them in federal court. They picked up the phone and started calling who they thought were the best lawyers in Alabama. And And you were the first call? 
I was not even on their list, but Sam luckily was. And after scratching his head, wondering why he wasn't slightly higher up on that list, I'm sure he um, answered that call and, and said he would help. And so I had just returned and didn't have as much to do as maybe some of the other lawyers. And Sam was kind enough to get me involved. Um, and it just so happened that the Judicial Inquiry Commission had appointed the former dean of my law school as the lead prosecutor in that case. Uh, he's a former federal magistrate judge named John Carroll, um, and he needed help in the prosecution. And because we were defending uh, the Judicial Inquiry Commission against Roy Moore and he was prosecuting him, those cases were running in parallel. And I sort of elbowed my way into the prosecution. Um, sometimes we need to elbow our way in. Sometimes you have to, and that's exactly what I did. But it would not have occurred had... Uh, great lawyers like John and Sam not stuck their neck out for me and allowed me to um, get appointed. Um, and so uh, it was a case of being in the right place at the right time. If you could frame the, the issue that Roy Moore at the time when he was a Supreme Court justice, what was the prosecution issue? The United States Supreme Court in the Obergefell v. Hodges decision legalized gay marriage in all states. Um, the language was explicit in that decision that it applied to all states, but Roy Moore issued an administrative order to all the probate judges in Alabama, ordering them not to abide by Obergefell because in his view, the Alabama uh, Marriage Protection Act still governed them. Um, it was a supremacy clause issue, if you will, and um, the Judicial Inquiry Commission filed six ethics charges for his failure to act impartially and to respect and comply with the law and any number of uh, ethical, ethical canons that require state courts to um, show respect for the United States Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And um, he was prosecuted, and uh, at the close of the trial, um, they found him guilty on all six counts. That case had a lot of national uh, media attention. It was like the, the lightning rod for uh, a lot of conservatives and, frankly, a lot of uh, folks who were uh, pro-same-sex marriage. I mean, it was a very polarizing case. What, what was it like on the, the day of uh, closing arguments walking into the courthouse? Um, it was like a circus. Uh, it was and, and, and cinematic almost. Yes. Um, on one side of the street were those in favor of the gay marriage decision, um, rainbow flags, peaceful protesters, drag queens, children, you name it. Um, and on the other side were the Roy Moore supporters, um, not all of whom were spewing venom at the other side, but some of whom, some of whom were. Um, children no older than my daughters holding signs that, um, you know, with Bible verses. And uh, it was... It was a very tense um, few moments uh, because we, as counsel, did not get to go uh, through the secret entrance. We had to walk up the front steps. And yes. so um, it was fairly obvious who we were, and uh, there were some fingers being pointed and cat calls and things like that. Um, What's going through your head as you're walking up those steps? It was, you know, the astronaut's prayer. Please, God, don't let me fuck this up. <laughs> can I say that on the podcast? You absolutely <laughs> okay. can say that. I know there are lots of success 
stories for you. But in my experience, I learn more from my pain and my failure. And so what is your story of kind of the greatest moment of pain or regret in your life? And in the end, how did you walk through that? Like the death of a dream? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I think in many ways it animated, um, a lot of my own ambition in the legal profession, um, resolving not to make the same mistakes in, in my new chosen career as I did on the first go round. Um, and so, you know, not having the courage, in my opinion, to do some of the hard things that needed to be done to succeed uh, as a musician really showed me um, that you really only get one shot uh, in life at something that you love. And luckily, I love more than one thing. Yes. Um, and and I've managed over time to continue to play music and, and even work it into some of the speeches that I am blessed to go around the country and give. Um, but the the death of that dream um, was something that, that I still think about, and it's still painful for me. Um, but to the extent that I uh, have learned from it, um, it's simply that uh, you really, this isn't a dress rehearsal, and you really have to give it your all and, and be brave um, and take chances. Yeah, that's good stuff. Well, we all have had some dream that at some point went away for whatever reason, and uh, I think it, 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 it either takes people out or propels them forward. That's right. That's right. And I, I, I would like to believe that uh, it did the latter for me. Um, you know, I doubled down on um, how hard I wanted to work and and, uh, and on my desire uh, to connect with people. Yes. Um, and I think the law affords, especially trial lawyers, that opportunity a great deal. Maybe not quite as much as it does a rock star, but the, the same motivation, um, I think both careers, at least for me, were animated by the same motivation, which is a real desire to connect with other human beings. The, uh, the desire to connect, having heard you speak in Savannah, and I, I, you've spoken and um, given a, a talk that, well, I think it went viral, and you, you don't, you, you won't claim that it has gone viral, but in the legal circles, it certainly has caught a wave. Tell us about the experience of you deliver this talk, and what was, what's the title? Is it the same? Has it had the same title since? The same the title. Be the light. Be the light. Um, you deliver this. Where was the first place you deliver it? The first place I delivered it was uh, in Maui to a room nice. full of about... It was nice. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you have the means. Yes. <laughs> I highly recommend giving your first speech in Maui. Um, no, it was it was yet a, another uh, way in which Sam Franklin has opened doors for me. Um, it was a meeting of the American College of Trial Lawyers. About a thousand lawyers had gathered. Um, I had helped the American College host uh, a trial symposium in Palau where about 15 lawyers had come to do a jury trial CLE, um, and I was there at least putatively to give a report on how that um, symposium went. That was that was the um, the auspices under which I was asked to come. Um, and then you break out your guitar, and the rest is history. 
that's that's probably so. Uh, I, you know, I knew I needed to uh, have an attention grabber, and um, you know, I saw a chance to um, relive the glory days, as it were. And I had a captive audience, so I decided to break out the guitar and see how it went. What's the theme of the talk, if you were to crystallize it? It's about the importance of human connection in our daily lives, um, mainly as it relates to the lives that I, in our profession as lawyers and judges that we've chosen um, and how important it is not to lose that in the profession. It's about the choices we make every day um, to either connect or disconnect, to either uh, reconcile or push away. Um, and. I think that we live in a world and we certainly live in a profession that is defined by disconnection. Um, we, we live in a country that has 5% of the world's population, but 25% of its incarcerated population. Yes. Um, we, we have a profession um, that is defined in many ways by, by separating human beings either from um, society or from their livelihoods or uh, you name it and I think there's another way and um, and I think it can be just as effective so that may be a long-winded version of saying the theme of the theme of the speech is about how to cultivate human connection in our lives and our profession and and for anyone that wants to uh, see it it is on uh, YouTube if you type in Ashby Pate getting pragmatic like i love the concept of we need to connect and we live in a society that is only growing in our disconnect with social media uh how we treat the marginalized in our society so much of that pragmatically for you like putting some skin on that concept how do you believe you connect you choose connection rather than disconnection in your everyday life in a, a few ways. I mean, from a, from a purely personal standpoint, I think it's the willingness to be vulnerable and to, to be human as much as possible with other people, not to put on a, a front, to be willing to talk about your regrets and your warts and the things that scare you and your anxieties um, that yes. uh, our society generally tells us, you know, we should keep to ourselves and yeah. which I had kept to myself for a very long time. So trying to be more transparent about what's going on in my own heart with others can inevitably lead to just general uh, human connection and conversation. With respect to, you know, the profession itself, it's looking for opportunities to, to either be vulnerable, to take on a vulnerable case, um, to do something that's not motivated purely by money, um, to, to support causes like diversion programs and drug courts and things like that. Um, you know, the, I, I'm lucky to go around and, and give talks to a lot of lawyers, and that, that is a very meaningful experience, lawyers and judges. But um, probably the most meaningful times that I speak are when I speak to drug court graduations. Yes. Um, and I see people who are in my exact position um, who have made it through these diversion programs um, getting a second chance. And so um, I, I try to put some meat on the bones that way. Um, though I am uh, a corporate lawyer and I uh, work for a, a big civil defense firm and we do 
high stakes litigation and I love it. Um, I also try to temper that with, uh, you know, a commitment to pro bono work and to um, doing things like this every chance I get. Clearly, you've had some incredible intersection with powerful people, uh, powerful leaders, powerful lawyers. What's the key to being a good mentee? Um, In other words, uh, in my experience, having mentored a lot of people, um, they're good mentees and they're bad mentees. (laughs) And the, The good mentees you want to spend time with and you want to invest your life in and you want to pour into them and the bad ones, you want them gone. Right. Uh, how does one become someone where you've created whatever you can so that people want to invest in your life? There is no substitute for working hard. Um, and in my experience, the times that I have uh, been lucky enough to um, have been brought under the wing of someone who could have been a mentor to any number of people, but, but chose to spend their time with me. Um, I, I, I'm pretty sure I got there by sheer force of will and willingness to roll up my sleeves and work incredibly hard. Um, and to the willingness to do the unglamorous things, um, the, the legal research, the, the, you know, the late nights, whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't, I don't think there's any substitute for working hard. And other than that, is I think people try very hard to be interesting. And I think what they need to do is be interested. And Mm -hmm. if you find yourself being interested in other human beings, um, that makes them want to be around you. Um, And it's not fake. It's just recognizing that someone else has something really important to offer and stopping for a moment and you know not waiting for someone to finish a sentence so you can start but to follow up with a deeper question um being interested is a far better way to get people to like you than being interesting let's talk about um making arguments what do you believe the keys are in your experience as an advocate to effectively make arguments I think it starts with creativity. It starts with the willingness to sit down and pour over whatever the universe of materials are and becoming a master of that. And that requires both hard work and creativity. It requires that you dig in and and absorb. And then it requires a little bit of time, at least in my process, to sit and, and find a creative way to clearly and accurately convey your position. Um, so creativity and, and hard work on the front end is obviously very important. Um, in terms of how you then uh, craft that argument, I think you just have to find your process. I, I, I have a very strange process which involves um, waking up ungodly early because I find that's when the muse descends and <laughs> and working you know between the hours of 4 a.m. and and 10 a.m. Uh, and then putting it down um, because I don't think you for me um, for me you don't create an argument you find an, an argument 
Yes. Right? The argument is there waiting for you to uncover it. Yes. Um, and I think so many people try to um, just force feed uh, something that that they read in a brief or that, that was their first instinct and they don't spend time looking for it. That, that makes sense. T- tell me, in, in, as someone who's both been a judge um, and interacted with judges, what piece of advice would you give on the most effective ways to interact with the judiciary? Above all, when it, when it comes to interacting with the judiciary uh, in a professional manner, I think, again, you know, clarity of your argument uh, is is incredibly important, and and brevity is incredibly important. Yes, um, especially the federal judiciary right now is is so covered up and so um, swamped with work. The notion that uh, the judge or the judge's law clerk really wants to read your forty five page you know treatise um, is is misguided. I think I think you need to be able to distill it down for a judge uh, in the first two or three pages and get them to be. Uh, convinced there. Yes, that's good. Uh, what would you say is the biggest obstacle, hazard, or pitfall for young lawyers starting out their career? Not spending time learning how to write um, and learning how to communicate clearly. I believe that writing is uh, a lost art and as a result the ability to speak clearly and coherently uh, is being lost as well the time it takes to sit and pour over what really makes a well-written brief which is let's be honest what 95 percent of our profession is um is 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 an exercise in um disciplining your thought processes. And so um, if it, I think the biggest pitfall is thinking that, that writing is a necessary evil and not the absolute center of what we do. I mean, I think it was Prosser who said that the law is one of the chief literary professions. And I, I cannot agree more. I mean, at, at, at my core, I, I, I consider myself a writer before I'm a lawyer. Um, and uh, I think that people don't spend the time practicing writing, reading good writing, remembering it, and then forgetting where they remembered it from. That's good. That's good. Any practical suggestions on how uh, younger lawyers can become better writers? I think it's exactly what I just said, which is read, right? Read good writing, and it doesn't have to be legal writing, uh, because most legal writing is bad. Yes. Um, you know, read read the greats. Um, you know, pick up a Brian Garner book, for example, uh, who I think is, is an incredible writer and, and an even more incredible teacher of writing. Good stuff. Um, tell me something that uh, no one, the the general public doesn't know about you. So I have something called synesthesia, um, which is um, the the experience of, of letters uh, and numbers are, are associated with colors for me. Um, so uh, 
when I meet people and uh, really every word that I perceive has a color scheme to it. And it's been the same from early childhood on. Um, there's a lot of different types of synesthesia. Mine's called grapheme synesthesia, which is the letter and number thing. Some people have much cooler versions uh, like Pharrell Williams, the famous producer and musician. He has the cognitive condition where when he hears music, he sees colors. Um, I sort of wish I had that version. But um, so the thing that most people don't know is that as soon as I meet you, um, you're assigned a color scheme. And yeah, so that I, I, I have a very colorful way of looking at the world, I guess. If, if you could uh, create a magic pill or uh, press a button and fix one issue, whether it's civil or criminal, what, what, what would you choose to fix? Drug policy in America. And... And, and maybe to be more precise, the, the disparity with which it is enforced um, in the various uh, demographics of our society. It I think just hits uh, the minorities so disproportionately. Yes. Uh, for, for crimes that amount to little more than what should be considered a public health issue. Um, I, I don't, I'm not standing here advocating for the legalization of all drugs. I, 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 I think that would be a bad idea, too. Um, but massive steps could be taken um, to change America's drug policy and dramatically reduce the number of people in prison, thereby relieving the burden on the prison system, freeing up funds. Yes. It, it w I, I think that alone would be a, a massive start, um, but it would, it would still... It would still be a broken system even after that. Let's say you had a chance to speak to a, a group of young lawyers, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking 25 to 30-year-old folks, and you could give them any advice uh, that you wanted to, and it's advice you wish you had when you were younger in the profession. What advice would you give? I would say be brave. Um, I would say don't be afraid to ask for the opportunity to, to do something that you think you're unqualified to do um, because everybody was unqualified the first time. And the only way you get those opportunities is to elbow your way in sometimes. Um, and so if I, if I could speak to someone just coming out or still in law school, I would say you know, be bold, be willing to ask for those opportunities, whatever, whatever it is that moves you. Um, and um, I, I think that, you know, pursuing uh, avenues other than the traditional uh, approach to um, going and getting a firm job can be incredibly rewarding and can help you later in your career, going to clerk, going to work for a public interest law firm, things like that, that may not have the money and the, the golden carrot associated with them, but uh, affords you the opportunity to do, you know, work that's beyond your years. Let's take a totally different group, like those that are actually older than you. If, if you were to speak to, let's say, the, uh, the people that are in their mid-50s, uh, another older generation, and you were to say, this is what the young lawyers need. This is what they need from you. And you were to be bold and be brave. What would you say to them? This is what they need from you. 
I think I, I think what I would say more than anything is you know be willing to take a chance on on a younger guy or gal. And I understand the reasons, the myriad of reasons why um, they would not want to do that. Whether it's they had to wait their their time and now they're just getting the good stuff. But you know the folks who've already earned their stripes, I would say. You know, push the work down as, as, as far as you can, as, as low as your clients will allow it. Um, you know, and, and you know what? Make decisions that, that aren't based on money. The more money you get, the more it motivates your decisions. I've seen it in my own life, and I think it's, it, it, it can be very toxic. And so, you know, there's always a reason um, to to allow that to uh, to to be a primary moving factor, and um, I think I think you, especially those of us who have been blessed and who have had the opportunity to to be more financially secure than others, um, make sure you look yourself in the mirror every day and ask yourself, you know, um, you know, is this is this decision being motivated by something that's um, not as important or shouldn't be as important as uh, as I'm making it. Ashby, I, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate you, uh, your vulnerability, um, your desire to speak out a message that's uncommon in the legal profession and uh, the boldness that you're doing it. So thank you. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, it was fun to do and great to connect with Ashby in my office in Orlando. If you'd like to learn more about Ashby and the talk he gave, if you Google Ashby, A-S-H-B-Y, Pate, and American College of Trial Lawyers, you will have a chance to see the talk. Next time, we're going to be joined by federal judge Skip Dalton. It was a really good interview in the federal courthouse, and I think there will be something for everyone. Take care. Have a great week.